Good evening. How's my table in the back doing? Are you all doing okay back there? Good. Everybody can hear me back there. My name is Dan Gerlach. I serve as president of the Golden Leaf Foundation. In 19, October 1998, when I was hired to lead the foundation by our 50-member board of directors, uh, we had, a, at that time, a public relations consultant. That shall remain unnamed. But they, uh, it was a group of uh, consultants that you may be familiar with. They're all 24 years old. They all know everything. And they took a look at the picture that the News and Observer was running along with news of my hiring. And they said, oh, my God, we need to do something with that. So they came up with this picture you see here today um, that we paid uh, good money to have me go to a professional studio. The, uh, the photographer, I think, was excellent. But looking at the subject that he had to work with is like, oh, God, it just, just we'll take it. And it'll be done with it. And here you have the results. The motto of this first story is you have to take what you have, where it is. And there's only so much that you can do with it. And if you right realize that, then we can make progress. All right? The Golden Leaf Foundation is Simon, who in his fine Ahosky accent told you, uh, not really from Ahosky, that's in Hertford County, northeast of North Carolina. He's really from London or, or thereabouts. Is that fair enough? Yes. Came here from New York and now came back to North, now is a, a proud North Carolinian. Uh, the Credit Suisse company, when I served in the, in the Easley administration, was one of these companies that we targeted to bring here and uh, provide back office support to uh, uh, as companies were concerned about their presence only in New York City and in other places like that, wanting to find a place where other professionals could, could find a good quality of life, could get a, a good and excellent workforce. And so I'm proud in the part, small part that I played in helping your company come here. And thank you for your sponsorship and my... Uh, talk tonight and I'll try to try to be worthy of it. But the Golden Leaf Foundation was created in 1999. The Golden Leaf is the uh, nickname given to the tobacco plant. And in North Carolina, uh, unlike many other states, that the tobacco crop was for a long time the leading cash producing crop in the state. Now, nursery is in fact number one and tobacco number two. Uh, because of the high quality of, of, of exports that, that North Carolina has in the tobacco plant. But it was part of that wealth, uh, that a lot of the poor rural parts of the state, what little wealth they had was in tobacco. And if you looked across our manufacturing sector, where the first, uh, the first manufacturers to break the color line, where the highest wages in manufacturing were, it was in Durham, it was in Winston-Salem, it was in Concord, it was in places where we made cigarettes. All right, these were the highest-paying manufacturing jobs we had uh, during the, the middle part of the 20th century and so forth. And the, the challenge is, is that people have found that cigarette smoking is not good for you. And uh, a lot of state governments uh, got upset about this and said that they would sue these uh, cigarette manufacturers uh, for various reasons, perhaps untruthful advertising or other accusations, but simply say, say that we need to recover the cost of the Medicaid program that state governments participate in, the cost of covering uh, the, the uh, state employee workforce uh, for health care costs due to smoking. And so the cigarette manufacturers were getting their butts kicked in court, and they decided that after Florida and Illinois and Arizona and some other God-unforsaken state that I can't remember as Mississippi, sued them that, that they said, we're just going to cut a deal with the other 46 states. Now, for Utah or a state like Utah, I'm not anti utah or anti-Nevadan, but they don't grow tobacco there. For them, this is just a windfall. So when the cigarette manufacturers had to add to the cost of uh, the, the, the uh, uh, price of packing cigarettes, here's the audiovisual tool. I promise you no PowerPoints tonight. As the price of a product goes up, the demand for the product goes down. Let me repeat that. As the price of the product goes up, the demand for the product goes down. The price of the product went up. So what happened is that there was less people who demanded uh, cigarettes and so forth. So the, the demand for the domestic crop went down. The demand for cigarette manufacturing went down. Cigarette manufacturing employment is 60, 70 percent off its peak. Uh, uh, tobacco, uh, the tobacco crop from its 1997, 1998 high is probably another, although it's gone down and come back up, is, is probably 50 percent off its peak. North Carolina's economy was hurt by this. And so what the deal was in North Carolina is instead of blowing the money in the middle of the state government budget like all these other states did, and I can say it's because I worked in state government budget, so I have some expertise. Instead of blowing in the middle of the state government budget and 
putting it as a revenue source and never seeing it again, as most other states did. North Carolina said half of the money in our consent decree, in our, in our legal agreement, should be set aside to a nonprofit foundation that shall invest this money and use it for grants to help transform the tobacco-dependent, ec- economically distressed, in rural areas of North Carolina. And so a lot of people f- see that our job should just be to help farmers use to, to uh, foreign tobacco. That is not our job. Tobacco, the tobacco crop and tobacco manufacturing were the value-added industries of North Carolina. If you go to some of the areas of North Carolina, the poor rural parts of the state that I do most of my work in, you'll discover this, that if all those people do is cut each other's hair and fix each other's car, they're going to be doomed to live in poverty forever. The way is, how can we import, how can we export something that is of value to other parts of the globe, and how can we succeed? Right, and our exports can no longer be tobacco and cigarettes. Although, you know, the Chinese are still smoking quite a bit, so God love them. I mean, we're still exporting them quite a bit. So exports in the agriculture area, including tobacco, are considerably high. But that said, we realized we had to diversify the economy. The Golden Leaf Foundation, what I serve as president of, is a, uh, a foundation that, that now with the corpus of, depending on what the market, the market was up today, so my investment officer will answer my calls. So it's worth $795 million or thereabouts. We make about $50 million of grants to governmental entities and to uh, nonprofit organizations to help move the state forward, to help these economically dependent, distressed, tobacco dependent, and rural areas of the state. Areas to say is, where can we help build our talent base to help export something of value and import, uh, import revenue from, from people from outside in, in the traded sectors? So I, I would argue that North Carolina has long been an agricultural state. It has long been a manufacturing state. Well, for those of you who may not, who may not have had the good luxury of being born in North Carolina, like myself, uh, who got here as quick as we could, like myself, uh, know that manufacturing traditionally in the, in the Northeast and Midwest was an urban phenomenon. Some in the, manufact- in the rural areas, but mainly it's an urban phenomenon. Here in the, in the South, frankly, and especially in North Carolina, it's a small-town phenomenon. So if the farms got hurt, that was one thing. But if the textile mill closed, all of a sudden you got real problems. Because in the textile mill and the furniture factory or the, uh, or the cigarette manufacturer went out of business, then all of a sudden you had towns where they lost 60% of their tax base, 80% of their water use, 60% of their employment, and so forth. Now these jobs, many of them didn't pay that much. We, had, we specialized in low-wage manufacturing. So what we want to be about is helping think about how do we create advanced manufacturing opportunities, advanced agricultural export opportunities, uh, increase ways uh, to promote tourism and, and local foods and things like that that, that are, are value-added sectors and so forth. So as we set about doing our work, we have a variety of, of uh, grants-making programs that intersect with the work that many of your companies and much of your sector deals with. One of the first things we deal with is infrastructure. So in infrastructure, we traditionally try to equalize not only between the water infrastructure, the sewer infrastructure, the road infrastructure, which this state has long been the leader on, but also we spend quite a bit of time worrying about the healthcare infrastructure. We do not believe that retirees will come, that tourists will come, that employers will come to areas where you have to drive 30 miles to get to a hospital. Right. So for a lot of these, uh, a lot of the work we do in collaboration with other foundations is how do we keep other rural, ho- our rural hospitals, our rural health care providers sustainable? How can we help uh, provide them grants for equipment where they get to provide oncology service or OBGYN service or uh, cardiology service or something like that? Where, where ho- this adds value to the hospital, shrinks to their bottom line, and it becomes... Healthcare becomes part of their infrastructure. And so the other part of the infrastructure that we've been uh, concerned about for, for a while, but most especially right now, is about the availability of access to broadband, right? And what we know is this, is that the strength of rural North Carolina and a lot of the sparsely populated areas where I spend a lot of my time on, if y- there's a lot to be said about the affordability and the quality of life and the beauty of some of these areas. But if you're living in the middle of Egypt and you have to drive 30 miles to, to get somewhere, 
and you can't communicate with anybody, you got a challenge. And so uh, we worked uh, in in uh, 2009 or so when the when stimulus when when all this uh, ARA money was available, the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, the, the stimulus money was about. There was a lot of money being put into broadband. This idea of how do we how do we get this uh, around uh, around our country to those areas that are underserved, and a lot of the private providers said, "Don't worry, we can provide that." And they said, "Well." How come when I'm out here that there's no access? And the answer is that the private sector, many, including some companies you may work for, simply can't provide the infrastructure to do so because it makes no sense to your shareholders. The amount of money you would have to charge to provide that infrastructure to run it out to places with sparse population is so high that you, in the take-up of the, of the people, many of whom live uh, in challenged economic times, is so low that it couldn't be worth it. Perhaps this is an area where we need some intervention. Uh, so the, the folks at the University of North Carolina, Children, uh, Chapel Hill, and the business school, who are great Americans, uh, came to us and said, what you need to do is put a whole lot of money into broadband in northeastern North Carolina and give us a grant to do so. Now, if there's anybody from here from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, it is a great institution, but they do not know how to manage a broadband project. I'm not going to give management professors a grant to run cable. No, it is not happening. So we said, is there a nonprofit around who has some expertise in this? And here comes my friend Joe Ferdoso from NCNC, who knows my friend Hunter Guzman and other, other people who do do this, who are nonprofits, who wanted to serve a lot of these educational agencies. And here's the story. That in so many of these areas, the schools and the community colleges, that the uh, amount of capacity they were using of the broadband they had was driving up so quickly because of video, because of whatever, that they didn't have the capacity to handle it anymore. And, and so the leases were going to come up. It was going to be inordinately expensive to maintain it. And so what MC, NC said is we not only need to uh, own our own fiber, but we need to build it in a lot of areas across the state. We had the ability to do it to the middle of the state, for, uh, and they did so through a round one, what is called the round one uh, BTOP uh, application, a, a broadband application, and their endowment at MCNC, uh, the uh, offspring of the Malucal Electronics Center, funded that match. But uh, Fredoso, who's one of the great you know, salesmen of Ice to Eskimos uh, persons in history, came to us and said, I'm broke, God, I'm depressed, you know, I'm bald, you know, I can't do anything, you know. He goes on and on, Danny, if we had some money. And so what we, he said, we could do it, and if we had X amount of million, we could do this, but if we had 15 amount of million, we could do this, and if we had 24 amount of million, we could really kick some butt. And so I said, well, let's do $24 million. Now, let me tell you, in a usual year, my foundation gives out $50 million in grants. So a $24 million commitment to middle-mile broadband, which does not directly hook up one house or one business. It, hook, it is, provides this infrastructure uh, to serve 1,800 miles around the borders of the state, and we hope to work with partners to get it to home and businesses, but directly hooks up libraries and hospitals and schools and community colleges and other kinds of providers. Then that we provided the backbone where where those areas would, would get broadband technology in, you know, I don't know, in the next century. And then, uh, of course, there are some patriots, and perhaps some of those are here, and please don't tell me about it because I've written the checks, uh, who think, well, you know, why are you doing that? Wireless is going to take care of all this. Don't worry about it. But the amount of volume, right, I mean, they need to get to the fiber quickly, right? I mean, the wireless, how long can that go? Please, God, don't tell me I made a dumb investment. But, I mean, by serving these, these uh, entities directly is what we assured them of is we know what the cost structure looks like for the next uh, four decades. There's 48 strands of fiber, which is, you know, a lot. That would be a technical term for, you know, more than they, they'll probably use in their lifetime and so forth. But what we know is this, is that that provides the backbone and makes it easier for private sector providers who are already starting to come to MCNC and to say is maybe we can lease some of this, maybe we can buy a couple strands of fiber and so forth. That is, that is transformational. Because once we take away the disadvantage of sparsity and distance, we are part of the way there towards dealing 
with the challenge facing a lot of the state, a state of small towns, a state of sparsely populated areas, right? A place where you can appreciate the beauty without having to, uh, to live somewhere else to appreciate it while still doing a lot of the work you do on, uh, and getting the access to the, to, to the broadband quickly. And so our, our build, which you can see on mcnc.org, uh, we titled the Golden Leaf uh, Rural Broadband Initiative since we put in $24 million, uh, out, of, out of the state, out of the non-federal match for a, 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 that part of the project is worth about uh, $28 million. We had a lot of share of it, so we got to name it for ourselves. Uh, drew down $75 million in federal money. Uh, the uh, federal agency, the North Carolina, the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce, routinely cites MCNC as one of their best grantees in every press release that they put out. MCNC, and they're doing a great job, and we're proud to be their partner. So by that, what we're helping to do for you is create more customers. And, and so let's talk about why that might be. We spend a lot of time in our foundation worrying about the uh, training of, of people for our workforce, and so one of the things we discovered is we have put a lot of money into community colleges and the university system, but mainly community colleges, into training workers, and whether it be in biotechnology or in aerospace, manufacturing or things of that nature, those traded sectors, uh, we have spent a lot of money investing in community colleges to, to buy equipment for them to do training on to help, uh, to help companies be successful in that area. But we discovered, quite frankly, this is not enough. Because if you wait till community colleges to make those investments, what you miss out is that the real learning is going on earlier. So Dr. Jim Goodnight of SAS, who has, uh, over time, earned more than a dollar, uh, came to us with this idea that he said in Cary Academy, uh, a, a private school that here in the Triangle that he and uh, – not here in the Triangle, the Triangle is yonder – but uh, over in the Triangle that he and his wife founded, that he said, you know, technology is working great there. I'm like, well, of course it is at Cary Academy. What does it we'll do in the public schools? And he said, well, fine. So why don't you help me fund it? So, so the SAS, uh, SAS Institute and the, their foundation help support the uh, purchase of technology for teachers. And we help the foundation, uh, Golden Leaf, helps fund in a few schools the, uh, the uh, laptops, uh, the, the learning devices for uh, students. And we start a partnership to evaluating how well this worked, uh, namely in high schools, but some a little bit in middle school, but mainly in high schools. Some in the early college high schools that, that North Carolina's leader on, and some in the uh, traditional high schools. And here's what we found, the, the, the most important thing that we can tell you about this, teaching and learning with modern devices that your kids, if they're teenagers or younger, know how to use like other people know how to use a toaster. A toaster is a device that used to be used to make toast. But in, and so what we learned is this, is that if there is not ample professional development of the 55-year-old teacher to help them figure out how to use this new technology to build teaching and learning, it will suck. It will fail. And all of a sudden, you will go in, and I'm saying, where are my new computers with all my Golden Leaf logos? Oh, they're over here in a box. Because Mrs. Johnson put them over there, because Mrs. Johnson been teaching school the same damn way for 28 years, and who am I to come in there and give her these bunch of toys that these kids don't need? Just sit there. And you know what happens when you do professional development right, and you teach them how to do it? Attendance goes up of teachers. Attendance goes up of students. Scores go up of students. Because you know why? When I go to Edgecombe County, the county uh, just east of us in Rocky Mountain, with the third highest unemployment rate, one of the highest poverty rates, one out of every three children under the age of 18 in that county lives below the poverty line. And every high school student in a public high school has a computer with our logo on it. And guess what? That the children who are high achievers get to work independently on projects like some of these bright young people you met doing this first stuff. Not probably to that level, but they get to work and not be waiting for everybody else. The kids at the lower end are thinking, my family, and a lot of them, 
there's a tie between poverty and, and education achievement. It's not perfect. I'm not saying every poor kid is not going to do well. I'm not saying every rich kid is going to do well. But what I am saying is that th- there's a relationship. These poor kids who would never own a computer are walking around like, I have got me a computer. I am so the man. Because somebody has trusted them with something. And those parents will come to that school to pick it up. And first of all, they're going to say, is, look, don't you damn break this thing because otherwise we've got problems. We're going to have to buy the insurance. And the second thing is like they're thinking somebody's giving my kids something that I couldn't be able to provide for them. And those young people are focused. I go to those schools at 3 in the afternoon. They're still paying attention. Now, when I was in high school, I, was a, yeah, I did well in school. Look at me. I'm kind of geeky looking, so I had to, to survive. But, I mean, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I could, you know, after 1.30, I was useless. I mean, forget about it. I was not focused anymore. But one of the things that's interesting is, is, is one of the challenges, I think, in any education system is how do we reach these kids in the middle? The kids who are, who are not doing well, the teachers are focused on getting them above the pass line, right? Because everything's like, how many kids do you have testing above the pass line? And those accelerated kids, those kids are doing well. Their parents are in one of the schools going around, what are you doing to my kid? Pay attention to my kid. Right? And that's how a part of how they succeed. But those kids that are in the middle, what, what do we do with them? And it's like they get to participate too. And so school technology, I think, can help all this. Is it a shibboleth? Is it the answer to all this? It is not. But when you have kids in Tarboro who get the same access to technology as kids do in Charlotte Mecca, or Chapel Hill, then they're, they're understanding something about it. Then we can work with kids where we go through Teach for America. Teach for America, for those of you who don't know it, is uh, probably the number one placement of, or probably top, top four placements of graduates from Chapel Hill and Duke. And basically what they do is Teach for America kids, they go to this program, they get trained, and they go into rural areas or urban areas across North, where they have needs, and they go and teach. And so I, went, I was up in Windsor, in Bertie County, which is you go past Rocky Mount, you go about 60 miles, you hang a left, you go up another 60 miles, and you're in Bertie County. And so Windsor, there's this young lady who's excited. She gets to walk to work and teach third graders every day. I said, man, where are you from? She goes, I'm from Los Angeles. I go, it is just like Windsor, is it not? <laughs> and she says, it is not, but I love it. And she's given it a few years of her life. And what we're trying to do is work with Teach America. So let's get some of these kids... Young people stay here longer, right? Not to look at it as missionary work, but look at it as a career. Not quite there yet. Because a lot of these people are young women, and they can't find any young men of marriageable status there. But we're working on that. But I will tell you, or dating status even, or I don't want to be ugly, whatever status. They can't find partners, so I don't want to be ugly. But, but in any case, they just can't find these people. And, and so we're struggling on that. But these, the kids who get taught by these young people are doing very, very well. Right? There's a lot of research that bears that out. And so by helping them, by target, marrying our school technology investments, with these young people who are very facile in it, to help influence the rest of the faculty there, then you're starting to build on your investments. Because we put money in Teach for America for their training program. And so that's one of the ways how we're starting to build this. It is not an answer for everything. But if we wait for an answer for everything, we're not going to make any progress. All right? So the broadband is going to come into the schools where we provide the technology. Guess what? Kids are spending more time in school after school because they can get access because the, the wireless, they have net nodes and, and whatnot to, to work there. And so we're seeing some progress there. And so those have been a couple of our investments in technology that should uh, interest you. But I think building on that is one thing that I sp- I'm an economist by training, and I spend a lot of time worrying about. Uh, the unemployment rate, as do many people. And I'm not in elected office, so I don't have as much uh, to do with this. But uh, I would say, how do we get that unemployment rate down? And I think the easiest way to do that is to figure out a way for these, for companies, perhaps like yours, or manufacturers, or many other companies who I've talked to today and other days, who say, we cannot find the workers to fill positions we have open this day. So anybody have that problem? So we, uh, you're going to hear, I think, some of it from tomorrow's panel. But let me just suggest this to you. So what we've done is we put aside $8 million in a special cycle uh, toward the mid-skills gap. Mid-skills gap is a, a, a name made up within the last six months by somebody to explain this idea of we don't have enough people to fill vacant jobs that pay good money in North Carolina and across the country. 
especially, uh, it's usually associated with the manufacturing sector. I would argue to you as members of NCDA applies to you as well. So how do we find these people? May, they're maybe not all engineers, but some of them are. Maybe they just are people who needed technical, uh, some kind of technical expertise. Some background, like these young people you saw. And we need more of them going through that first, the, the basketball exercise you saw earlier tonight. And we said, well, one of the things I'm worried about is the achievement gap between African Americans and Latinos and, and uh, whites and Asians. And, and I would categorize the American Indians in this category, too. How do we close that gap? And so we went. We asked a lot of people. We studied up on it. What do we need to do? How's a good grants-making cycle for that? And what, what we heard back and what we did a grant cycle in is science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM. And I know I don't ask, I, I'm used to saying science, technology, engineering, and math, and I know you know what that means, but I don't have the honor to speak to people like you as learned, smart, beautiful, and, and, and well learned as you uh, who know that, so, so I do at a habit. But we, we thought this, is what we want to do is we want to get Algebra one competency by eighth grade up, period. And how will we do that in these rural areas, under-resourced areas of Ross State? One is what we will do is we will look for areas where they have proven programs, kind of hands-on programs to get young people in fourth to eighth grade engaged so that they can build a way to get people to Algebra one competency by eighth grade. Right? They get to Algebra one competency by eighth grade, then they get into the higher-order math and science, generally, that helps prepare them for the careers that you want to hire them in. So we're working for you. The second thing we did is we said, well, one of the ways we'll judge success in this is if, that you have engaged the business community in your region and helping discern what kind of schools there are. So if I'm training, if I'm out in some areas of the state and they're uh, training for the next biomanufacturer to come along, I may be training them for nothing because the biomanufacturer may never come there. But if I'm listening to the, to the local employers and talk about what they need in terms of uh, basic skills, in terms of skills in, in the STEM disciplines, then there's a higher degree of relevance. It will lead to higher engagement of businesses. It will lead to eighth graders figuring out that what this means is $20 an hour to me. It is not as ephemeral. It is real. And I am a parent of a ninth grade girl. And I can tell you the understanding truth about this is they understand that money is good. And the more that they can get of it without having to tell me how they're spending it on, the better off they are. This they understand. You try to tell them that you ought to go and do this because you ought to do well in school for some reason. They're like, okay, whatever. But, but if you understand there's some goal, a concrete goal, the better off you are. Those two things made a great demarcation in terms of the hands-on skills that had a proven track record plus business involvement. We introduced a cycle of $5 million. Uh, $5 million. We want to see how it went. We had $50 million in grants requested from us across North Carolina. Our administrative assistants about beat the hell out of me for all the paperwork they had to go through. We had 90 grant applications from across the state, meant most of them from K-12 districts to do that. And so we had to winnow it down to $5 million. And I'll tell you, the $5 million is the right amount to fund because a lot of those didn't have participation in businesses. They didn't have interaction of, of folks like you uh, for, from their heirs. They didn't have a plan where they relied on, on some kind of tried-and-true methods. They wanted to do too much classroom education. They didn't focus on how this would increase their Algebra one competency. So we did this, and then all of a sudden I read a report from these professors at Duke that said, well, you know, too much of pushing a kid's to Algebra one competency can actually lead you to bad outcomes. That if you force kids in Algebra one before they're ready in eighth grade, then, and if they don't do well, then they're going to do less well in Algebra one later on. So they said, what about that? And I said, well... What we said is we've got money, and we're going to be real about this. So if you have a hands-on way of training like FIRST, like some of these other proven programs, uh, like Project Lead the Way would be an example I've used, used in several districts, then you have a chance of doing this the right way and not just pushing kids to take stuff they're not ready for. 
the reason why we're doing the grants making for grades four through eight is to get them ready by the eighth grade. But if we wait much longer beyond that, and if we funded everything in the seventh grade, then we're you know trying to cram them into this. Okay, you can't add. Come on, here you know, uh, uh, Mr. Dan leaves Rocky Mount traveling at average speed of X. You know, going uh, if he leaves three hours and forty five minutes later, and he's going to Shelby, and you know what? Who knows? They can't do basic math. It's train them to get together to solve these real world problems. That is the, the, the benefit of this. And so what we did is we funded UNC Greensboro, the SURF program there, to evaluate this. Let's go look and take a hardcore evaluation of this because we're going to do it again. Let's make sure we know when we look across the, uh, the uh, 10 or so uh, awards that we did make, let's make sure we understand what did work and what did not work. Because what foundations cannot do is provide for the entire public good of education. What we can do is help uh, the state, local school districts, you, and others across North Carolina learn something about what works and what doesn't. So when you buy, when we buy 200, when we buy up in the Yancey County at 750 school, uh, 725 uh, laptop computers for their entire high school, and we learn about what works in these kind of areas, that we learn something that, and then we can communicate it to the state before they buy 725,000 of them. You see what I'm saying? What we can do is we can provide some evaluation and some learning uh, to the public sector and to others interested in, in philanthropic work and, and supporting of their future workforce and able to learn from what we do because not everything we do works the first time. So that's what we're doing in, in STEM education. The last thing, the, no, I'm not a Baptist preacher because whenever they say the last thing, there's four more things. I only have three. Uh, but the, uh, one of the, the, the most exciting things we're doing right now is trying to get to this idea of this mid-skills gap, and I mentioned trying to fund, fund that type of thing. But I think one of the things that I've been doing a lot during the month of May and early June is this. Is since 1999, when we were started, our first chair of our board was a man named Bill Friday. The first, one of the greatest university North Carolina system presidents ever was. And President Friday, as chair of our board, uh, at the time suggested that one of the things that tobacco did is it helped fund a lot of young people to go to college. And so our grant program should be part of that. So for years we've provided grants for young people some financial need to go to a North Carolina's public and private colleges. When I came on board in the foundation in October 2008, uh, we could not tell you the names of any of those children. We could not tell you if they graduated. We could not tell you, you know, if they're still living in rural North Carolina. We could not tell you if they had a job. We couldn't tell you anything. No, it was because we just were trying to encourage this, and we hadn't evaluated it. So we paid for an evaluation. Some of it is hard to tell because we, uh, because because it involved financial financial aid. There there's some uh, federal regulations against. Uh, disclosure of information, et cetera, even those who uh, gave the money. But, but I would say is this, is they did better in school, they were more likely to finish school, et cetera. But we provide 4 to $5 million in scholarship money a year. The total amount of financial aid given in North Carolina a year is several hundred million. So what difference does our money make? Our board reflected on this and decided the difference our money makes is when we go through and do a lot of our community-based grants making, which I could talk upon if if you want to, but probably not enough time tonight, at least not while the average, I'm a great speaker at two and a half drinks. <laughs> Four drinks is too many. One drink, probably not enough. So get yourself another one. But if you want to talk to me further about this, but what I would say is this, is that the average age of groups, when I come out and speak to them about, about how to move their county forward in rural North Carolina, is probably about 60. I don't see a lot of people my age, and I worry about that in these economic distressed, tobacco-dependent rural areas. Where's the next generation leadership comes from? So what we decided with our grants making and scholarships is we're going to fund young people who have deep connection to the communities, who have some financial need, who have done pretty well in school and, and have some volunteer activities, and who might want to come back to rural North Carolina to, to, uh, to live and lead. And what we would do is we'd give them a four-year scholarship or $12,000, $3,000 a year. What we would do is we will send them to the Center for Creative Leadership in Greensboro, the, rated by Forbes as one of the top five leadership training programs in the world, to learn more about the Golden Leaf Foundation 
and its connection to rural North Carolina and learn more about their home communities. And if they do that, then we'll also pay for internships for them back in their home communities with businesses or nonprofits or what have you uh, so that they can explore their careers but understand they don't have to stay in in Raleigh or Greenville or Chapel or Boone or or Charlotte to, to do that. And so we have 215 scholars in the, in the uh, upcoming class. I've met 101 of them personally. This is a long state. I've driven around a lot of high school gyms, uh, seen everybody's daughter but my own. But I would say this, is that there are a lot of these young people are interested in being teachers. A lot of these young people are interested in being nurses. Some are interested in farming. Some are interested in running a small business. Some are interested in being IT professionals. Right. We have a young man who graduated from the early college, uh, last year from the Edgecombe Early College Program, goes to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, wants to be an IT engineer, and guess what? So this young man graduated. He already has you know, 60 college credits that were transferable to Chapel Hill. He is the first in his family to go to college. And right now he's interning with NCDOT on their signal optimization program back in Edgecombe County, in Edgecombe County. And maybe next he'll be, he wants to be the district engineer there of that NCDOT division where he will proudly stay until somebody buys him out. But in the meantime, he might want to go back there and, and help lead his community as a young African-American man. This is, this is why, why I suit up to go do this job. Giving away money for a living does not suck. <laughs> Giving it away wisely for the mission to which I am charged is difficult. It is very difficult. But we keep struggling to identify how can we keep building? How can we keep working with partners like NCEDA and companies like yours that make up the membership of NCEDA to figure out how rural, economically distressed, and tobacco-dependent areas of the state can share in the prosperity and not be a drag on it? Because, quite frankly, when that young person with the laptop in Inchcombe County, I don't know which one of them is going to run one of your companies someday and which one's going to be in jail. I don't know which one of them is going to have a child of 14. I don't know which one of them is going to be the next president of their, their community college. I don't know. But because I don't know, I'm going to start doing grants making to try to help give every single one of them a chance so that they might have their chance to succeed the same as my, my daughter or any, other, or any other of your sons and daughters might have. Because that's the only way, it seems to me, that by building in the infrastructure to help business succeed, by building in the workforce training for workers you need right now, by building in that workforce for the future, then the Golden Leaf Foundation is actually doing what it's supposed to do. And we do other things as well to complement, but, but, but you're in seat and so I want to talk about this part of the mission today. You've been very patient. I don't want to get in the way of putting, you know, glow-in-the-dark balls on the lawn or whatever else you all are going to do. So I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions at the time I have left. And I hope this has been beneficial to you. Mark has, the, uh, has, has a microphone. Let's see what time it is. 8.43? we got a few minutes. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm a mayor of a small town in Cleveland County. In Cleveland County. Wh- which town is that, sir? Grover. Yes, sir, Grover. I'm familiar with it. Yes, sir. Is this on? It is. Um, I'm wondering if you are we, – we have an elementary school in Grover. Yes. Are you all planning at any time to – go from high schools to middle schools to elementary schools? Yeah, the question was, uh, in Cleveland County, which is a county where I spend a lot of time, we've invested in a lot of uh, companies uh, and, and help with the builds, not only around the data center. I should say, too, if I might, before I answer, well, I'll answer your question first. The question was, at Grover and communities like this in Cleveland County, are you going to get to the elementary schools? I think it's going to take us some time for us to do so. I think we're going to have to evaluate the middle and high school first and then get to it. But yes, do I see a place for us to participate in that? I do. Now, uh, the rest of my commercial in Cleveland County, for example, on the eastern end of the county, uh, they have been very lucky. There's been many of these areas, not lucky, but, but I think have done an excellent job of recruiting. In a lot of areas served by Duke Energy, these data parks, right, these huge data centers, they may not hire a lot of people, but they add a lot of money to your tax base. And, and there's a park at, actually in Kings Mountain. And uh, what we help do there is the, the, the uh, Cleveland County came to us and said, we need to help these companies like AT&T and what, whatnot get connected to, to really fiber. They need, they need a redundancy and so forth. And they said, it's going to take us $3.3 million, and here's who you can make the check out to. And I said, well, yeah, uh, I'm all for that. But what I did is called up NCNC, who was running the, the fiber right down 74, and I said, Joe, 
Is there any way where we might be able to build it faster to serve not only that park, but over in the park and uh, over Facebook, over Rutherford County and so forth? And he says, sure. And so we cut the amount of that. All of a sudden, that bill dropped from $3.3 million to 200000 just from that switch alone. And then we provide the rest of the money, provide the fiber over there to help. And, and AT&T and the other users in the park, I believe Wipro's, I think another, another major company in that park, they pay a market rate to use it, but it helps provide the infrastructure to, to give them the redundancy we need. So uh, we've been active there, but I think on elementary schools or, or, or in areas we have not reached as much, uh, our board for a long time resisted K-12 education because they figured our amount of money and the, this huge, vast of uh, challenges facing K-12, what could it mean? They focused on the school technology. I think at the invitation of Dr. Goodnight, we started middle and high schools. Uh, we started the invitation of some people talking about STEM, and I think we're, we're going to move on from there. But how that takes shape will depend on the evaluation of these existing grants. Thank you for the question, sir. This, uh, this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this gentleman here, also with the Nahasky, asked, asked a question of uh, how important is it for these people to have role models who they can look up to? So here, here's what we do as part of our scholarship program is we have uh, coaches for them that Center for Creative Leadership identifies coaches. And a lot of time they're leaders from rural North Carolina. They might be the executive directors of the chambers. They might be uh, leaders of companies. They might be some retired professionals. And if any of you would like to be doing this, we might be able to put you all to work. It's being a coach to these young people, right? So out of the 215 class we'll have, maybe they'll handle six young people or so. And they'll work with them. And, and uh, for instance, we have a, a Jen Nixon, who's a doctor of a, a family practice doctor, head of the Health Alliance in Rockingham County, up north of Greensboro. And so she works with six young people from Rockingham and Caswell, the, the adjacent county kind of coaches them along and says, here are things you can look at, here's things you might want to explore, and so forth. So, yes, we do provide them with a role model of this. I think there are other role models. When I got and I talked to the scholars, uh, just for example, they have role models of uh, a lot of them who want to be teachers have done that. A lot of them are inspired because sometimes I run into uh, young people whose fathers, and it's mainly fathers, have died of cancer or some disease, and they want to get into health care because of that. Or uh, a lot of them have parents who are teachers or, or parents who are, uh, have held the land for 200 years and they want to go and, and learn how to do that better and keep hold of the land. So they do have role models. But I agree with you that it's important to give them those, those types of role models and point to success. Here, here's one thing I hate. I, I am an economist, and so I know my job is to depress everybody. But it's our profession. But when I hear that the next generation is not going to have the same standard of living we are and they're going to... They're too fat to live as long as we have and all this. You know, there's some challenges that face my, my daughter's generation. And I don't, I think we go in that with eyes wide open. But we don't go into it with minds shut either. I'm not going to go and put my daughter through college because I think she's not going to have the life I do. I think she's going to have a better life. And I think all of us should have that idea. But I think if we buy into this fact that, well, it's just it's going to be horrible. It's not going to be as good. Sorry, we're at the top. Then what kind of people are we? We're not, that's not North Carolina's way. I'm not out here running this foundation because, uh, because I think that, well, we're just trying to make everybody feel better before Rome falls. I don't believe in that. I believe that we just have to continually work very hard at it, be collaborative about it, be smart about it, and learn from our mistakes but while still taking some risk in order to be competitive. That's what we have to do. It's not easy, but it's part of this. And so I hope that we remember that. Right. If you take nothing else from what I say tonight, I will say this is let's let's not have given up on this. Let's let's say that that perhaps some we go in here with eyes wide open on the challenges, but not minds shut on on whether or not we're all going to be second, a second tier nation. I don't believe that at all. Had nothing to do with the man's question, but <laughs> I did answer it along. the I answered along the way, didn't I? Any other questions? Yeah, this well, because by the way, Mark Vidner will be here from uh, uh, Wells Fargo in the in the in the morning, and well, Mark will tell you the truth, which and so he'll depress you, but uh, but I refuse to do so. We're in too good a mood.
This, uh, who, who, where? There you are. Hello, sir. Yes, sir. What, what sort of take-up do you see of broadband once you've pushed it out to these rural communities? Yeah, what, what kind of take-up there is there? I, I think the challenges to take-up are two. One, well, three. Uh, one is there's some people who don't want to mess with broadband because they just don't want to mess with it. Like my dad. My dad is like, did you get a new fax machine? I said, yes, sir, right along with my pager. I did. Uh, I, I don't talk that way to my father, even over the phone. But, but I would say, is there's just some people who are not going to take it up. So that's one challenge. And we have a, uh, although the, elder, uh, the uh, older population is our, our rural population is disproportionately, in these sparse areas is disproportionately uh, older than the rest of us. Uh, that's a challenge. Two is, is just a, whether or not they can afford to do it. I think there are efforts by some to make like phone service, to give lifeline phone service, can give lifeline broadband service. I believe the private sector will help get it to affordable where people will be able to do that. But it's a, I, I would call that a medium-term challenge. And I think that uh, the, uh, the final challenge will just be it's going to take us a while to get the middle mile out there to everybody and then, and then the private sector companies to be able to, to build out and to make money off of homes and businesses to convince them they can do so is... is uh, it's going to take a, take a little while as well. I see it as a, a medium-term, short and medium-term issue. It's not a long-term issue. I believe it will come once the, the broadband gets out there. Because there's a lot of ways, I think, to get it from that middle mile through wireless and some other uh, solutions to, uh, uh, to, get to, uh, to get to that last mile. Those are the challenges I see, sir. Did you have any? Did I miss any? or? Yeah, I mean, the problem I ran into is, is, is a couple years ago, so I'm trying to convince some policymakers of the cause of this. I said, this is a challenge we're going to overcome. And they're like, well, my BlackBerry works fine. I'm like, yeah, but when you're putting the Coastal Research Science you know, Institute out here in Dare County, and they don't have the transmission lines to pump everything back, what are you going to be? So what happens when, let me, let me get off on this. So, so in Kannapolis, where... Uh, Mr. Murdoch put all that money into, into the side of the old can of mill into, uh, in, in Kannapolis and put all that money in the NC Research Campus. They didn't have broadband access. We ran a spike from Charlotte up there so they could be connected to the rest of the world. So you have all these scientists and fruits and vegetables and every other thing get connected. Because what happened is they thought everybody in the world was going to leave and come to the research campus. So who needs broadband? I mean, they're going to come there. Well, hello. Uh, so... Uh, it went out to the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, and the guys talked about, well, we got this greatest place ever down here in Kannapolis. And Bethesda, Maryland, have y'all ever been up there, seen that campus? It's like, it's like Kannapolis without the marble times 10. So uh, it's an important thing. And so, so I think those types of things are going to be uh, overcome and make a real difference. There's, was there anybody in the back? Or what, what do you think, Mark? Yeah, that, there you go. I saw him earlier. What, what can we do for you? What can you do for me? Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> I, I think this is right now, uh, the Golden Leaf Foundation, like many of the things created by my former boss, Governor Easley, is Governor Easley liked to name things, right? He said more at four for his pre-kindergarten program, learn and earn for this early college program, Golden Leaf. I think the idea of Golden Leaf makes it sound kind of, how does one say this, kind of like, too cute. You know what I mean? It's like Golden Leaf. They have all this money. What do they do? They're all there in Rocky Mount. What kind of mischief are they up to? And a lot of uh, traditional libertarian foundations and so forth have, have criticized us for some of our grants making, some of which was not, uh, you know, grants making that, that I think panned out in the long term, right? Uh, but I think they're, they keep talking about grants that probably total $800,000 out of $500 million of grants making. I would like to uh, measure that same error rate against anything they do or anybody else does. I think one of the things that we've done that's wise is to keep our money separate out of the state government pot, right? The, the, the thing is this, is, is they say, well, is this an interference in the market? The interference in the market was the whole master settlement agreement where you decide that the externality of cigarette smoking was such that it was such a nuisance that you needed to increase the price of it which I believe more than these commercials than anything else, reduced demand. And so you've interfered in the market by keeping these people who grew tobacco and, and, and uh, 
manufacture cigarettes for their livelihood. So you simply corrected that by giving it to somebody. We're part of a settlement. We're not a government-funded agency. We are, we are public money, but it's not funded by the taxpayers. It was a court agreement judged to fix a wrong done by these people who grew tobacco and, and, uh, and manufactured cigarettes and to try to help address the needs of a greater state in terms of improving its export economy. We, our goal has to be to how can we help those areas uh, across North Carolina increase their export economy, right? How can we import money from other places to help them do so? And that's the goal. But if, if the General Assembly, as some would say, were to take that money and put it in the middle of the state budget, it will never be seen again. Never be seen again. And so when these issues, like the data park in Cleveland County, like how do we help test out some of these ideas in STEM, where do we find the match for broadband? Because the state would never have been able to come up with it, and we would have not had all that build. Where would it come from? If it weren't for us, it would not have happened. There are some questions for us that are but for. I think the idea is when you look at what other states have done on their tobacco settlement, they have nothing to show for it, right? And so my, fans, uh, my, my friends who support limited government, so they want to take our money and give it to government. Wait, you're for limited government, so you want to take money away from a private entity and give it to the government. Ponder and reflect anew upon that. But I think the biggest thing you can do to help me is say is take a look at what they've actually done with it. Because I can tell you where every dollar of our money is gone. It is all reported on our webpage. It is reported every year. I can tell you when, when a company says it's going to, with, with the benefit of a grant it gave, we gave for a training or public infrastructure or equipment financing or anything like that, that if they promised 100 jobs, I can tell you because we require how many of them jobs have actually been created, how much of that investment has been made. Uh, we, we are totally transparent and accountable on it. But if it goes in the middle of a government budget, then it's not there. So you say, is, why don't you, I think what I would do, I ask is this, is what can you do for us? Is simply say, is you've become a little more aware of some of the work we've done, and say to uh, people who have questions about it, to ask us about it, so we, we might help make our case to them plainly, instead of them reading the latest Civitas report to find out inaccurately what we've done. I thank you for the question. He's not related to me that I know of. You've been very gracious in your attention. I appreciate you letting Brooks, thank you. This is a great honor to address your organization. Thank you for all you do to lead it. You all have a good evening. Thank you.